So this evening, I would like to look, explore together, compassion. And so in terms of quotation, I decided to use uh, the Bodhisattva precept. So the quotation will be more from the Mahayana than Chinese-Korean tradition. And so there is this text, this book, The Path of Compassion, in which I translated in English the Bodhisattva precepts. There are 10 major for 88 minor. And the reason I translated it was because at least once a month they would be recited in the monastery. And after a while I could understand enough Korean to understand what they meant. And I realized that actually the precept determined a lot of what people did in a monastery. And for example, determine one thing which I thought was interesting. And this was what, they, what was a ritual of forgiveness. That if you made a mistake, the only thing we had to do was to go and bow three times to somebody a little higher up than us. And that was it. And what was interesting was like once I was in a nunnery, my first nunnery ever, my first season in a nunnery, and me and another Western nun, we did not behave totally according to plan. And then one point somebody said to me, we have to, we have to bow. I said, we have to bow, what do we have to bow? I said, we have to bow. So then we, the nun did not want to be there to receive our bows, but still... We did the three bows, and after that it was better. So, but what is interesting with this uh, ritual is that what I experienced in Korea about that is that it really was forgiveness. Like if you said, yes, I made a mistake, you bowed three times, and the really that was that. It would never be mentioned again. When it seems to me forgiveness Often I think in the West, you forgive, but you don't forget. And so generally it comes back and it's served later. And to me it was very inspiring to see this kind of what I would call full forgiveness. And actually the forgiveness comes from this text. Where in this text it says, Refrain from being angry. When someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat him or her well. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from becoming angry himself or herself and must not make others angry. He must never create the condition and causes for becoming angry, devising a mean of giving rise to anger or commit acts of anger himself. It is a duty of a bodhisattva to be always kind to others and never to quarrel with them. He should always present a compassionate state of mind. If, on the contrary, a bodhisattva should abuse a living creature or vent his anger on an inanimate object, and if, even though he may have resorted to beating them with his hand, a stick or knife, and the person has politely begged forgiveness, <coughs> his anger remained unappeased. This would be an extremely serious transgression. So it's interesting, I mean, the thing about anger, I love the thing about the not kicking an inanimate <laughs> object. You know, I mean, these precepts were created in China in the 5th century AD, and it was kind of inspired by a two paragraph from the Brahmajana Sutta, from the Pali text. And then they kind of created a way the precept which would work for them. So you can imagine somebody, a kind of a, a scholar, hitting a cart. And nowadays we hit computers or whatever it is. But what I found interesting was about the forgiveness. If somebody ask for forgiveness. Actually, it's a transgression. 
not to accept it. And the reason is because a bodhisattva is someone who aspires to awakening. And one of the duties of the bodhisattva is to be compassionate. And what is interesting with this text is that, as you might have noticed, for example, if I say the first one, refrain from taking life. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act himself, by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising death, by the use of spells and mantra. One must never intentionally kill a living creature by creating the cause or condition for death, by developing a means of taking life, or by engaging in the actual deed of clinging, killing. It is a duty of a bodhisattva to be compassionate toward others. But what I found interesting is that it's not just saying don't kill. It's kind of look, look at the condition. Are you doing it in a roundabout way? Are you causing somebody else to do it? So it's kind of really looking at what are the conditions for the act, what is behind it, what is around it. And then I wanted to share with you this one. Care well for those who are sick. Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for him or her as he would for the Buddha himself. First among the eight fields of blessing is that of nursing the sick. So again, this emphasis on compassion. And he says, if you fail to nurse and give assistance to someone who is sick through thought of dislike and resentment, then he breaks a secondary precept. So what, it's interesting to see others who are ill, to care for them, I've seen that as if that person was a Buddha himself. So in a way to see each person in a way the potential Buddha suffering and having compassion for that suffering. And I wanted to finish uh, with this possibly. Save the lives of living creatures and set loose those about to be killed. Out of his compassion a disciple of the Buddha must set free living creature. And so what happened with that precept was that they actually, after that, uh, had ceremony to release creatures. And then you had a commerce of living animals, fish, birds, and then the people would buy them to release them. Then the merchant would kind of catch them again, and then we have... <laughs> So it's interesting, you have this precept, very good intention precept, and then it kind of creates its own economic system. <laughs> but even in the 1900s, uh, when you went to China, if you went to the monastery, there were actually zoo, nearly like zoo, for old animals. So people would bring their old cows or their old fish, and so they had a place for the bird, a place for the cows and things, and and seemingly, I mean, people who went there saw this, kind of all these animals at the end of their life, begin taking care compassionately, either by the nun, either by the monks. And I think the last one. Refrain from anger. Do not strike others. And do not take revenge. A disciple of the Buddha must not repay anger with anger or blow with blows. To take revenge on someone is not in accordance with the principle of compassion. And so one should daily avoid committing any misdeeds of body, speech, and mind against one's servants by beating and scolding them because this would be to abandon a compassionate mind. 
So nowadays, we don't have servant anymore, but you have the service industry. <coughs> and how are you when you try to get, you know, your problem with your computer, you phone the service, you wait, you wait, you wait. Finally, you get somebody who tell you to do something you're already done. And how do you speak to them? I think it's an interesting one, actually. How do we connect to others? How do we speak to others? So then what I wanted to do was actually look at first vipassana. And why do I want to look at vipassana when I'm talking of compassion? Because I would suggest that vipassana, looking deeply into the characteristics, is actually going to be one method for manifesting compassion from actually a compassionate response arising. So not to see Vipassana looking deeply experiential inquiry just as an intellectual activity or just as an inquiring activity. But personally, I see it as a mean to change our attitude from inside, from experience. And so let me go through the characteristics. So the first one is impermanence. And then you have two aspects to impermanence. You have, in a way, ultimate impermanence, which is death. And I think if we're really aware of ultimate impermanence, I feel we look at life in a different way. And that's what I realized. When I saw my father die, when I saw his last breath, then at that moment I really understood, experienced impermanence. And at that moment my heart really opened to realize, as my teacher used to say, our life rests upon a single breath. And to realize that each person's life is precious is fleeting. And then you cannot take your life or other people's life for granted. And then what this experience made me be with people in a very different way. For example, with my mother, it really changed my relationship. Because instead of seeing her and relating to her as my mother and I have this history with her and this and that, from that moment on, I was relating to the human being who was in front of me, who was suffering, whose life rested upon a single breath. And then my relationship became so much more compassionate, so much more creatively engaged, instead of being stuck in story, in reaction. And so in a way to see that I think if we really are aware that our life is fleeting, other people's life is fleeting, then arise compassion for that life. And then we'll have a different relationship to each life we encounter. Each life is precious. Then there is another aspect of impermanence, and this is change. And I think this is something we have a tendency to do, to fix ourselves, or to fix other. I am always like this. You will never change. I think this is one of the most painful things we can do to ourselves and others. Because when you say always and never, you're basically saying every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year, forever after. But you can't. You really can't keep it up. I had a tendency to, many, many years ago, I still have it a little bit, not so much, <laughs> to lose my bag when I was tired and traveling, a little stress. And then it happened again many years ago, and then Stephen said, you always lose your bag. And I thought I had this vision, you know. A divorce was coming. 
And then I looked and I realized I did not lose my bag all the time. But I realized I had a tendency to do it when I was a little kind of tired and traveling. And so after that, I became more careful. And then I lost it much less. So he keeps an eye on it. (laughs) But to me, this is really a compassionate move to see that the the person has a potential to change. So in a way, when you meet somebody, even though they might be stuck at that moment, or even if, if you might be stuck at that moment, it doesn't mean that you will be stuck forever after. And to me, this is something that really inspires me to see people transforming. And they really kind of things are really stacked against them for many different reasons. And it looks like they might not be able to change. And then suddenly something happens and they change. There is this beautiful book by Christopher Lawson who used to be uh, addicted to alcohol. It's called Moments of Clarity. And so he went around, many people in America were either into drugs or into alcohol, and he said, where is the moment where you decided to change? And it's fascinating because they all had such different moments, such different moments which suddenly they decided, this is it. And until that moment, they really did not change. They really did not change. And suddenly, they change. Something happened, and they decided to change. And to me, this is, in a way, having this heart of compassion is that knowing that there is a possibility of change. But the change might not happen fast. So in a way, we need to have compassion for the fact that the change might take some time for ourselves or for others. Then you have the other, the second characteristic, and Stephen has talked about it. It's dukkha. And dukkha has three aspects, actually, when we look at it in terms of the characteristics. It means unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, and dukkha dukkha, which means pain. And so unsatisfactoriness is basically the, the Buddha, the text are saying, not that we cannot get no satisfaction, but that it's only temporary. So yes, we can be satisfied by things, but not satisfied forever after all the time. That's all it's saying. And I think if we know that, then I think we start to be a little less, in a way, perfectionist, to see, well, this is the best I can do in this situation. And it will last for a while, and then it will change. And I can only give myself and others momentary satisfaction. And then what the Buddha compares it to is contentment. Instead of looking for lasting satisfaction, can we actually enjoy contentment, being contented? And this in a text in the Pali Sutta, there is this text about the lineage of the Buddha. And he said, in order to be part of the lineage of the Buddha, this is what you have to do. And basically what you have to do is be contented with your food, your clothes, your uh, cover, your house, and meditate. And that's, again, not possibly so difficult. And he was addressing this to the monks. And the monk seems to be kind of, you know, I want a house with more curtains, or I want a different kind of clothes. Or, and he was saying, just be contented with the minimum you need. Then unreliability, of course, it's only reliable because it's changing. And I think it's really, here we are a little confronted. I think we, we kind of have this thing, you know, we must, things must be reliable all the time. Of course, they can be reliable for a little bit. I mean, we, this is incredibly consistent, this weather. <laughs> this English weather, we're not used to this. Generally, the English weather is a good example of unreliability. <laughs> but this possibly is a sign of unreliability. 
You cannot count on rain anymore. <laughs> so it's just things are unreliable because they change. And then instead of fighting the fact that change, just flowing with the thing that the things change. But in terms of compassion, I think it's the last one, dukkha dukkha. And dukkha dukkha really here refers to pain, refers to mental pain, emotional pain, physical pain. And I think when we experience pain, what we realize is two things, that it's painful, but more than that, it is isolating. Nobody can experience our pain for us. And I think to me this is from that arise compassion. When I was young, I was quite kind of in this new age idea that, you know, pain was all in the mind. <laughs> if you had a pain in the knee or pain here or pain there, all in the mind. Get your mind together and you should not have any pain. So I was not that compassionate, actually. And it's un until I got ill myself in Korea with my stomach. And then I realized, ooh, that's dukkha dukkha. This is painful. And it's isolating. Nobody can experience this for me. And how does how that really arose compassion? As the Buddha said, care, as the text say, care well for those who are sick. And the Buddha said the same thing in the Pali text. Care well for those who are sick, as if they were the Buddha himself, myself. And I think this is what is important when somebody is suffering, to know that. And I think that's what was beautiful about that book of that young autistic Japanese man, Why I Jump. He was really showing people that he suffers. When he does all these things, he doesn't do it on purpose. He cannot control it. There is some mechanism. And that's why he said, don't give up on us. We are isolated in this. But if you are there with us, it feels easier. So, of course, we cannot feel for the pain of others. But we can be there for it. And then the last one is... Anatta, not self. Or you could say conditionality. And there, what is interesting with that one is to reflect on what are the conditions that allows me to be alive. And if you reflect on it, you can reflect that the air breeze, the water I drink, the clothes I wear, the house I live in, the medicine I take, all this, is outside of me. I generally don't create it unless you're really into self-survival and then you go on the top of the mountain and you do everything for yourself. That's generally really tough. A few people try to do that, but it's really lots of work. Generally, we benefit from people producing this thing and helping us to survive. And I think when we realize that our life rest upon everything outside of ourselves. We cannot but have this compassion for what sustains us and what we share. And I think this is another thing we can do with the breath, with the breath meditation. One thing I kind of time to time like to do is breathe in and then try to go inside the air that I breathe and question, what is this air that I breathe? And when I do that, generally I experience that I breathe the same air with everybody. So your air going to my lung, my air going to your lung. And so at that level, we are not separate. We're part of a bigger organism. So can we not have compassion for people in that? organism. So compassion is something which I think is also very important as a practice. And I think it's important because compassion means being aware and having compassion for the suffering of others. 
And that, in a way, enables us to come out of ourselves. Because I think one of the things which is painful is to be self-centered, is to be kind of just focused, kind of imprisoned in ourselves. And so when, whenever we can have compassion for others, then it's kind of like we're opening our heart, we're opening our existence to somebody else. And generally that makes that self-fixing dissolve a bit. And so I think it's a, it's a great practice to do. But I think when we do this practice of compassion, I think we have to be careful in terms of this assumption that I am compassionate because I feel compassionate. And if I don't feel compassionate, then I cannot be compassionate. And there is this uh, important um, existence philosopher, French philosopher, Gabriel Marcel. And he says, compassion does not just reside in a feeling. It resides in the fact that you are available to the pain of the other. He talks of la disponibilité. So to be available to the pain of the other. And his example is like somebody is very ill and you really, when you are with a person, you really feel compassion, seeing straight the suffering of that person. But then the person goes to the hospital and you say, oh, I'll go and see you in two days. But two days later, you don't have the person in front of you, so you don't have that same feeling. But you still go because you're available. That's one of your values, to be available to the suffering of others. But... Suffering, the thing with suffering is that suffering is painful. It's painful for the person who experiences it. But actually, it's also painful for the person who is aware of it with the other person. I think it's very important to see that compassion, which is to do with being with suffering, actually will generally often produce unpleasant feeling tone. Feeling tone of sadness, feeling tone of anxiety, feeling tone of diff. So I think it's very important to see that compassion actually is not easy. I mean, yes, uh, far away compassion is relatively easy, but right next to the person compassion generally is painful. We don't have the pain of the person but we have the unpleasant feeling tone that comes with being with suffering. And that's why then equanimity is so important. Because I think we can easily be taken over, overwhelmed by suffering. Overwhelmed by often, often we have this association of uh, somebody else suffering. And in us it triggers this unpleasant feeling tone, which then generally becomes sadness. And then generally we kind of quite overtaken by sadness. And so then, if we in a way want to be compassionate, to be actively, creatively, wisely compassionate, one of the important ingredients is equanimity. So that we can be with the suffering. We can be with the unpleasant feeling tone. We can be with the sadness and we're not overwhelmed by it. Many years ago we were um, in Africa and we, of, we used to often go there to teach and we used to help a charity there in the villages. And then they decided to take us to a family with the idea if they see them they'll do something for them, basically. That was the idea. And so we said, okay, let's go. And so we went, and really, it was really, really sad. Really sad. It was very sad, and they really had nothing, nothing. And of course, we decided to help them. But to be with that bareness, that destitution, I suddenly felt for them, felt for their suffering, but also felt that I can help this family but I cannot help all the family who are feeling like this, who are destitute like this, with no means whatsoever. And so for a week, I had this feeling 
of sadness in a way for that. But it did not disturb me. I just was aware it was there. But there was enough equanimity to be able to be with it. That's why, in a way, equanimity, what we did today, is so important. To be stable, to be balanced when we are compassionate. So we can, and that's why I think it's important to see compassion as, when we talk about compassion here, as creative, wise compassion. And one of the ingredients which we also cultivated this week for that is listening. When we are compassionate, generally it's not just that we feel something, it's not just that we are available, but that generally we creatively respond compassionately. And then the question is, is it wise? And then in order to know what's needed, we need to listen. Because I think often what we have is what I call agenda compassion or theoretical compassion. I am going to be compassionate. I am going to save them. I have the good idea about what to do. But maybe that's not what they need. That's not they, what they want. So I think that's why we need to really be humble and to listen. Another thing you have in this village uh, is a nursing home. So you have a prison there, nursing home there. And a friend of mine, our mother went into the nursing home. And so I said, you know, what can I do to help you? She had a difficult situation. And she said, oh, can you visit my mother in the nursing home? And I said, sure, sure. And I thought, great, we're going to talk about impermanence, you know, and, you know, death, you know, great, great, great. <laughs> so I was all fired up, you know. And then I get there, and actually she's kind of a little, uh, at that time, uh, that day, she was hallucinating. And she was actually seeing huge uh, spiders and insects, <gasps> and she was kind of really frightened. And so no talking about impermanence and death, but quickly creative, wise compassion. What can I do here? And then what I started to do in order to help her was actually to distract her. This was my thing, to know what she liked so that I could distract her so then the hallucination would disappear. So she would start to look funny. I would say, oh, what about you know, making jam? Oh, yes, yes, jam, you know, or cricket match, and and then I would distract her. So it was, it was nothing about being mindful here. It was all about distraction. <laughs> and actually what she said she liked about me visiting her is that a lot of the time we just sat quietly. And the, that place, that nursing home was so buzzing. It was like... And she, she was a Quaker. And so she really just... We just sit quietly. And she really just enjoyed being quiet. So in a way, to really, with compassion, listening, what is it the person needs? And then to ask, can I give it? Because I think we have to see that with compassion, there is a spectrum. That at times we can be what I call heroic compassion. We can really be totally for the other. But it cannot last very long because we have only a certain amount of energy. Or we might be ill ourselves, and then we need to be compassionate to ourselves. Or we might be in the middle, compassionate to ourselves, compassionate to others. So I think there is many different ways to be compassionate. But also we have to be aware of our limitations. When I was a nun in Korea, I used to be in, the, in those days, in the 70s, it was very uh, special to have... Uh, Western monks and nuns. So often I would be in a newspaper or in the magazine and I could guarantee that within a week I would get a letter of some young Buddhist girl or boy saying, please can you give me some money? Just because I was a Western, I was assumed to have money and I used to send them, you know, as a nun I had very little money so I used to send them, you know, like five pounds if I had them. I say, I'm sorry, I've not got them. So, you know, I was very aware of my limitation in that way. I could not help them there. 
And sometimes we can do something for others, sometimes we cannot. And sometimes what is asked of us is actually to be there, to see the person. To me, this is something often we associate compassion, we must do something, and then the person must change. That, I think, is also the problem. I am only compassionate if it makes a difference to them. If not, forget it. You know, what's the point? But I think, in a way, if, back to the availability, we are compassionate, we're just there. And sometimes we just ask to be there. We don't have to do a lot, we just have to be there. Have the patience, the love, the compassion to be there. And another thing with compassion we have to be careful about is what you could call uh, commercial compassion. So I'm compassionate, but I hope that possibly in exchange I'm going to get something else. Or at least I get thank you. The person is grateful. My mother is very generous, but she's complained. They did not say thank you. And my, my teacher, Master Kuzan, used to say, when you give something with compassion, you must give it like if you were to give a dirty mop. You will not expect anything in return. And can we be compassionate that way without expecting anything? Just giving it if we can give it. Of course, this is the question, can we give it or not? Is it possible or not? So that's what I wanted to say about um, compassion. Then, there is this question about compassion. That's why. How can I be compassionate without getting drawn into the life of the other person I am compassionate with? And then the other question was about how it might be easier to be compassionate and not be overwhelmed with strangers and more difficult with families. And this is where, again, equanimity comes in. I think we, you know, what we build up, it's back to what we did today. If we want to be able to be compassionate without being overwhelmed, then we need to cultivate stability and balance. Because then we can meet the person, we can meet the need, and we're not going to be overwhelmed by it. But then also, it's kind of like, it depends how complicated the relationship is. I think this is, you know, and it depends what the person is asking. And can I give it? This is a question. Sometimes people want things that you cannot give, or want you to be a certain way, and you cannot be that way. And so I think it's kind of like, how much can I be stable and kind at the same time? How can I be balanced and compassionate? And so it's kind of, in a way, then it's kind of where the practice, the creative awareness comes in. How can I be with it? And so, of course, then there is a question of how much can I take? <clears throat> Once there was somebody who was saying, but you know, this person, they're so difficult. They're so difficult. It's really hard to be with them. And I asked, but how often do you have to be with them? And they said, oh, once a week for an hour. I said, well, they are with themselves all the time. And that's tough for them to be with themselves all the time. You only have one hour. And if they're not aggressive, then can you have the patience to be there for an hour? And then I think it's also being creative. How can we make things lighter? I think, of course, it's difficult sometimes being with certain people. But then I think it's about, tomorrow I'll talk about this, creative wise speech. How can we be compassionate and creative with the way we relate in speaking to others? I think there is a lot of things we can practice there, we can cultivate. It can be a really interesting 
exploration. And then there was another question which is a little related. And this is, how can I responsibly involve myself in political action against perceived injustices without this too being dominated by anger and hatred? And I think this, to me, is uh, what I was saying, that anger is a creative function. And I saw that many years ago when I was at one of these conferences in France with the Dalai Lama. And so they had set up conferences around the teaching of the Dalai Lama, and then they had invited different people from different religions, and they were going to talk about peace. So it was a little soporific, you know, peace, peace. And it was very hot, like here, you know, and everybody was talking about peace. And then this guy come up, little guy, who actually was one of my heroes, and he appeared, and he says, I am angry. And I thought, ah, wait, you know, this is everybody woke up. And so basically it was, it was L'Abbé Pierre, with a person who is really did amazing work. He was a Catholic priest, and he even became an MP in order to deal with homelessness in the day where they really did not do much in the 50s about it. So he was angry at poverty, at homelessness. But that anger actually made him act. But it did not make him act in an aggressive way. It made him act in a compassionate and wise way, and he was very effective. And so this is, he was very clever. He really was really creative. He did not try to fight. He tried to do, to kind of force people in an underground way to do what he wanted them to do. It was amazing. It was really amazing. The way he got things to work as an MP, how he kind of forced them to kind of put them on the spot of showing that they were not uncompassionate. They would kind of, very cleverly, he would make things so that they could not not do it. Otherwise, they would lose face or something of that nature or be really nasty, which was not good for politics. And so I think the idea here is that, yes, we want to act compassionately, and sometimes it means to be activist. It means to go against injustice. I think it's last year or the year before we had somebody, a person at the end, uh, the person finished the retreat, this study retreat, and she said at the end, oh yeah, thanks to the meditation for the last years, it was really so much better this time when I went to jail. So oh, she went to jail. And basically, she is one of the plowshare people. She, again, people who I really uh, respect immensely. Basically, the plowshare people, his idea is to turn, uh, basically, weapon into plow. And so their idea is uh, to do different action against, for example, nuclear things, trident, and so this time she went into the nuclear power plant, I think it was in Scotland, and then they put blood on the thing, or they did some kind of, uh, I mean, they did not arm anything, but they kind of made an action. And then she went to jail. We said, oh, it was much better this time. I could just be mindful and I could help everybody else. Because she had done this before, uh, many, many years ago when she was younger, when Plowshire was really in the news. And and what she did in the prison was really helped other ladies who were in prison, you know, about their right and this and that. So she was fairly occupied in the prison. And she had kind of some fun, actually. <laughs> and to me, this was, in a way, compassionate action coming out, out of this energy. This is not right. This is not appropriate. This is harmful. I am going to do something about it. But it was done in a creative, wise way. Because the problem with if you are compassionate out of hate or anger, then generally two things happen. It turns on you because you really get kind of worked up 
And generally, then everybody is worked up and often things are problematic within the organization. And also, if you have a very fighting stance, then the people on the other side are going to respond again with a fighting stance. So you might achieve something by attacking them, but generally, often, the results are not so good. At the moment, you have uh, this uh, wonderful uh, three men in New York. They're all Buddhist and meditator, and so they decided to do compassionate action against Goldman Sachs. So what they do is once a week, just when the people who work in Goldman Sachs go in, this financial institution, they sit in meditation in front of when they, they have to see them as they pass, and they just have a sign, be compassionate at your work, when you work. And that's all they do. I mean, you might say this is nothing. Personally, I think it's wonderful. Wonderful that they do that. So I think it's kind of in a way to see how can I use that energy, that, that what you could call this appropriate compassion toward injustice or suffering, but do it in such a way that actually it benefits myself. It benefits others by seeing my example. And also it makes the action, I think, more efficacious. So, that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Mm -hmm. Can I take it back to forgiveness? Yeah. Um, I really struggle with this. <laughs> um, at one level, yes, of course, very straightforward. If somebody does something and they're really sorry and they come and say they're really sorry, of course, no problem. <laughs> Um, but it gets more complicated than that, doesn't it? Um, with, uh, what if they repeat it? Well, some people are not genuinely sorry uh, for all sorts of reasons. In their lives, they've got to a point where they're doing things that are harming other people. And it, it, the image that you described of the, doing the three bows reminded me a little bit of the... The Catholic idea of confession, um, you know, if you just go and you, you know, you say your Hail Marys or whatever it is, and, and all is well, and then, then you can go do it again. So, so that's one problem I have. <laughs> and, and the other problem, I guess, um, comes from a, an example, well, a very sad situation which I came across. Um, I go and visit the Buddhist prisoners in the, in the jails and have done for many years, and um, many prisoners, as you referred to earlier, have had awful experiences themselves before they ever got there, um, as well as having done some really bad things themselves too. Um, and, and one young man who was extraordinarily distressed about the abuse that he uh, experienced um, when he was small, um, and one of the other chaplains from a different tradition said to this young man that the only way he was going to relieve his distress was um, if he could forgive the person who had done this to him. And this young man killed himself two days later. Um, and that's, that's just struck with, stuck with me, really, as forgiveness isn't that straightforward, really, is it? Okay, so no, no, that's why personally I generally don't use the word forgiveness. I think in our society, the word is really very complicated. Connected, as you say, to the Hail Mary, connected to all kinds of things. That's what personally, I would generally not use it, but Helen wanted me to talk about it, so I used it. Because I think forgiveness is very problematic in our society, especially in the West. In terms of the forgiveness ritual in the Buddhist tradition, it's really only through forgiveness ritual if, and that's throughout the text, if you know you are, if you admit that you have made a transgression and you intend not to do it again. So that's generally really the spirit of it. Otherwise, as you say, it's an empty ritual. What's the point? So personally, 
what I prefer to look at, because it's so charred, that word, as acceptance. And so, as Stephen, when he was a Buddhist chaplain, he would accept the prisoners as human beings and respond to them as human beings. But he did not condone their action. And so that's what I think it's important. Like, for example, with the example with the young man, of course, at one level, if something has been done to us in the past, we have to accept that it has happened, but we do not condone that it had happened because it, it was not appropriate. And so I think, that's, that's, I think that's why I prefer to look at it as acceptance and then not condoning. And how, in a way, then the question is, how can I repair in any way what has caused that hurt, either by addressing the person who did it or by doing something with the person which helps them to repair it for themselves? But yeah, I would totally agree with you. Forgiveness is totally loaded. It's really difficult. I think acceptance is much better to look at it in those terms and not condoning the thing. I think that because then it's like you brush it off and then it's like it was not important, it did not happen. That I think is really important not to go that way. Yeah? Your mind is exactly the same. Like this lady, so. Okay. Thank you. Estella? Um, it's about the equanimity. Um, in, in this guided meditation I had this afternoon, I felt I could really lost the plot because I usually use equanimity meditation when um, the, the, the phrase is, well, I'm quite agitated and, and do find it, generally speaking, helpful. Um, but as you said, you know, your, your instruction was to um, use it sort of experiential inquiry, um, starting with what can I, what can I bear in this in this moment in this setting? And I sort of started. Well, I thought well, there's nothing really to bear. I mean, everything's just sort of fine. And then there was, and I was doing some listening to sounds, and there was the sound like yeah, it's a bird. It must be a bird and it's, it's trapped. I think that's the sound out there. And the more I was thinking, can I bear this rather than just having it as sound, I could sense the sort of actually getting very much, completely losing the equanimity of getting really kind of obsessed with it. And then going on to the, when you said, uh, what about balanced? And stable is the same thing. I thought, well, I'm not balanced with this at all, and I'm certainly not at all stable. So I actually ended the meditation session um, sort of having completely lost it, really. So I wondered what to do about that, and, and I, have I, I think I perhaps misunderstood the instruction. Uh, no, no, I think, again, you see the. the okay, I'm going to read out the, the other phrases. Like I was trying to do something a little different this time. So this is um, traditional phrases for equanimity. All living beings are owners of their action. All living beings have their action as their refuge. Whatever action they perform for good or evil, to that they will fall heir. Then you have the modern version. May we be undisturbed by the coming and going of events. I will care for you but cannot keep you from suffering. I wish you happiness but cannot make your choices for you. So that's, I don't know if some people are used to these sentences. It's fine if they work for you. Me, these sentences don't work for me, so that's why I don't use them. And I think the problem is the word bear. You see, I did not use the word bear. I use the word accept. Or I use the word see and know. And I think when we use the word bearing, again, you have this impression that I must, like, kind of, no matter what happens, I must bear with it. But personally, I feel with acceptance, it's more embracing it, like Stephen said, embracing suffering. But again, 
I think what we have to be careful about, what I was trying to do is that sometimes people like just to repeat the sentences. May I accept things as they arise, may I be stable, may I be balanced. And then you just repeat the sentences and that can be quite concentrating. But then there are other people who really don't like to recite sentences. And for them, but then it obviously doesn't work for everybody, I kind of try to be more in the experience. But that, the problem with it is that I'm trying to, can you be in the experience of it, just accepting it, and not so much in the kind of the thinking about it. But it's a little tricky, so that's why for some people it might be better to do the sentences, and for others it's okay to connect with just acceptance or just a stability. But then not use, and that's why I said, no, we don't go for like 150%. But can I experience some stability? Or you can take it as what it, does it mean for me to be stable right now? How can I feel some stability? And often I would say to feel the stability is in the seat. So to come back to the body, to come back to the seat. To feel balance. I think often what we can do is just shake a little and then find the posture again. So it's, again is to see, does this word resonate with you or not? And then the question is, are the world going to create more destruction, which seems to have happened, or not? And if they create destruction, then just drop them and come back to the breath or to something simple. Sorry about that. <laughs> yes? I just wonder whether, in the context of this discussion, it's significant that the only other image in this meditation is I take to be the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, Kanzayama. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and in the traditional representation, um, Kuan Yin has a thousand eyes and also a thousand arms. And just think of the uh, balance and equanimity dealing with all these signals coming in and knowing what else in your sort of Swiss Army knife a thousand different ways of dealing with it. What is the appropriate one? Perhaps it's significant that, uh, that, that Kuan Yin is transgender. That, that she started out in India as Avalokiteshvara. And that uh, sometimes, as you were saying, as with the nursing home, perhaps the best thing to do is to be as representation is. Just there. And uh, there is a, a little Quaker phrase that I rather like, which goes something to the effect of ask what love requires of you, which may not be too much of busyness. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. And then there was something there. Can you remind me of the, the compassion phrases? Oh, the, the, the compassion phrases uh, for the meditation. Yeah, not necessarily the ones, the complicated ones, but simple ones. Uh, so what I read, what I read was actually the equanimity phrases. Yeah, no. So the equanimity phrases you, you're asking? No, the, compassion. the compassion. Okay, the compassion phrases is, may I be free from pain, may you be free from pain, may I be free from sorrow, may you be free from sorrow, may I gain release from all suffering, may you gain release from all suffering. I mean, I can put, put all this up there if you want to have a look at it. Yes. It's not really obvious, but could you say something about the difference between sympathy and compassion? Because I think sometimes people are sympathetic, but that's, in my mind, that's very different from compassion. Um, I think it's kind of what words, what meaning words have, you know? And so often one word we like to use is empathy. In a way, in order to have compassion, you need to have empathy for the other person. So sympathy, again, it depends, I would say, what British people, how they associate it. Because often words kind of change their meaning over time. So for possibly it can have, for some people, a more superficial meaning. It just depends. And uh, because in, in tomorrow I'm going to introduce something which is sometimes translated as sympathetic joy. 
sympathetic joy, which now is more easily translated, which is, I think is a better word, as altruistic joy. So empathetic joy. So again, I think depends what meaning it has. So I think it may be to go for the meaning which possibly resonate more with something which has more empathy, more connection, than something which is more kind of superficial. I like them, but I'm not going to do anything. And I think we have to stop here so you have a little walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.